This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program today. I hope you had a wonderful week. Let's start the program with a story about an old man, his son, and their farm from the book Soul Food, a collection of heartwarming and enlightening stories collected by Jack Cornfield and Christina Fellman. Having worked for many years developing his farm to support his family, the old man came to a time he thought he should retire, sit on the porch, and contemplate the universe. The book continues. The book continues. His son was strong and able and having a family of his own, it seemed time for him to take over. So the old man handed the farm over to his son and settled into a comfortable chair on the porch to enjoy his remaining years after a life of back-breaking toil. His son was at first proud that finally he was master of his own farm. But as the months went by, working in the fields, he began to resent his father's inactivity. His father sat on the porch, bouncing his grandchildren on his knee while he had to work all day. Resentment began to arise in the son's mind, and he began to look at his father as just another mouth to feed. He thought to himself, I have my wife and children to take care of now. The old man doesn't understand. He just sits there. It doesn't matter what came before. This is hard work, and I wish I didn't have to take care of him too. So his son went on hoeing and planting, getting angrier and angrier, until at harvest time he began to think that he didn't want to share his food with that useless old man on the porch. He wanted it all for himself and his family, and thought, his time is over, he doesn't need to be around any more. So the son built a great wooden box of heavy teak, and when it was complete, put the box on a wheelbarrow and wheeled it over to the porch, and said firmly to his father, Dad, I want you to get into this box, do it now. His father bowed, and without a word, climbed off the porch and into the box. The son closed the heavy lid over his father, snapped the great brass hinge. Wheeling the box to a cliff, he was just about to tip it into the chasm below, when he heard a knocking from within. "'What do you want?' he asked gruffly. From within the box came his father's soft voice. "'You know, I understand. If you want to get rid of me, that's okay. You think I'm just a useless old man.' But if you want to throw me over the cliff, what I would do is take me out of the box and just throw my body over. I would save this box if I were you. I think your children would have use for it some day. In previous programs, we've gone through renunciation, which is the determination to be free, and the altruistic intention, or bodhicitta, and now we come to the crux of Buddha's teachings, the wisdom realizing the final nature of how things actually exist. Of course, we've mentioned this on numerous occasions in the past. 
but it's not the easiest thing to realize, and I must admit to being no expert on it. So I'm going to draw heavily on greatly, greatly realized teachers like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Lama Zoparumbashe, Geshe Sonam Rinchen, and others. We're going to begin with the first part of the verse, that is, the wisdom realizing the final nature. Though the story that opened the program relates to the second part, dependent arising. But we'll come to that later on in the program. So thinking about how things finally exist, let's start with a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama from a teaching he gave in New York City in 1998 called The Spirit of Manjushri. Now for those unfamiliar with Tibetan Buddhism, Manjushri is the personification of the Buddha's wisdom. So this talk is in the spirit of that. His Holiness says, Based on the true recognition of the unsatisfactory nature of existence in samsara, and also based on the full appreciation of the desirability of liberation from this, one should develop a genuine aspiration to seek such freedom. This is called true renunciation. In order to develop a genuine aspiration to attain full liberation or freedom from samsara, one needs to develop a certain understanding of what nirvana or liberation really means. In this context, one also needs to have some idea of what it means to attain such liberation. This understanding arises from the recognition that the delusions of the mind can be removed. In this context, the understanding of emptiness is critical. When we say, for instance, that a cup is empty of coffee, we mean that the cup does not in any sense contain coffee. Similarly, when Buddhists talk about the emptiness of an object, we mean that that object does not in any sense contain inherent, independent existence. It exists only dependent on other things. With that in mind, let's continue with His Holiness's commentary. He says, Generally speaking, Generally speaking, the notion of moksha or spiritual liberation is found in many religious traditions. For example, in the non-Buddhist Indian tradition of Samkhya, there is a very sophisticated concept of moksha or liberation. They speak about 25 primary objects of knowledge, which are various manifestations of or modalities of the primal substance. When all of these manifestations dissolve into primal substance, this is when all delusions cease and true liberation takes place. Similarly, in the Jaina tradition of ancient Indian thought, there is a conception of moksha in terms of there being an ontological pure land where spiritually enlightened beings take rebirth. What is unique to Buddhism is the true understanding of moksha or liberation that can only come when one has a deep understanding of emptiness. There's a passage from Nagarjuna's Mula Makya Makakarika, Fundamental of the Middle Way, which gives a very succinct account of what Nagarjuna understands as moksha or liberation. Nagarjuna states that liberation takes place when the continuum of karma and delusions has ceased. Here, the cessation of the karmic continuum and the delusions does not refer to a stream just coming to an end because it's a momentary phenomenon. Rather, this cessation refers to a cessation that is brought about by deliberate means, by the application of the path. The karma which gives rise to the whole perpetual cycle of unenlightened existence is in turn created by the motivating factors, such as the delusions of the mind, that's attachment, 
hatred, ignorance, and so on. These delusions or afflictions of the mind themselves are in turn created on the basis of a false perception of the world, particularly the kind of exaggerations we tend to place on our perceptions. This perception of the world, in turn, is created by our fundamentally ignorant way of perceiving the world, whereby we tend to project some sort of eternal, abiding or enduring nature to things and events. This is termed conceptual elaborations in the sense that we are elaborating the world. This elaboration, or the fundamentally misconceived way of viewing the world, is something that can only be eliminated and rooted out by developing the insight into emptiness that sees through the deception and understands the world as it is. The key to undercutting this whole process lies in the correct understanding of emptiness. So what His Holiness is saying here is that we have an innate mistaken conception of how things exist. This has always been with us, since throughout our many lives. It's not something we've just developed in this life. We tend to see things as having their own intrinsic or inherent existence. For instance, when I look at a table, I instinctively think that I'm observing a real table, that it's a table whether I'm looking at it or not, and it will stay like that when I leave the room. Tomorrow, when I come back into the room, the same table will still be there. This is what His Holiness calls an elaboration, projecting some kind of enduring eternal nature to the table. We don't only do this with tables, though. We do it with everything, ourselves included. Nothing actually exists like that. Everything is empty of that kind of existence. However, because we think ourselves and other things, people and so on, have their own inherent existence, we develop liking for whatever appeals to us, dislike for whatever seems to threaten us, and indifference to the rest. From that comes attachment, aversion, ignorance, and all the other delusions that are the source of all our problems and suffering. His Holiness goes on, There's an alternative reading to the last line of Nagarjuna's statement that all of these conceptual elaborations are calmed by the means of developing insight into emptiness. The alternate reading is where he says that all these conceptual elaborations are calmed within emptiness. This notion of calmed within emptiness has the sense that it is in fact the insight into our ultimate and true nature of mind which dispels the delusions of the mind. The mind, in a way, becomes the same instrument of purifying the mind. If one thinks through carefully, moksha or liberation is nothing but a state of mind the ultimate nature of the mind. The ultimate nature of the mind is the emptiness of the mind, and this is sometimes referred to as the natural nirvana. The emptiness of the mind, a mind which has reached a point where it is cleansed of all its delusions or pollutants, is nirvana, or moksha. Therefore, in the scriptures, there are mention of at least four principal kinds of nirvana or liberation. First is the natural nirvana, that refers to the emptiness of the mind. In fact, this is the basis or ground that allows, makes it possible for our minds to become free. The remaining three are the nirvana with residue, the nirvana without residue, and the non-abiding nirvana. Now, if we think that things like tables and events and even ourselves are empty, 
but we cling on to the idea that the mind itself has some kind of inherent existence, we are making a mistake that will prevent us from reaching liberation. His Holiness is pointing out here that even the mind itself is empty of inherent independent existence. We must not think that anything has such an existence. Even emptiness itself is empty. In other words, we must con not conceive of emptiness as being some kind of ultimate nature that informs everything else. Emptiness is a dependent arising, just like everything else. For a crude instance, saying that a coffee cup is empty of coffee implies that there is a coffee cup to be empty. If no coffee cup exists, it would be meaningless to say the coffee cup is empty of coffee. So the emptiness of the coffee cup itself depends on the presence of the coffee cup, even though the cup has no inherent independent existence itself. I hope this is not too confusing for you. But talking about nirvana, His Holiness mentioned four types and explained the natural nirvana. For an explanation of nirvana with remainder and nirvana without remainder, we go to Trilagrimpache in a teaching titled, What is Nirvana? In this teaching he says, What is Nirvana, we may ask? For the moment, I think we need to understand two things regarding Nirvana. Even in relation to the basic, fundamental concept of Nirvana, there are two different types. Even in the earliest Buddhist literature, two forms of Nirvana attained. When we attained Nirvana, we attained one of two different types. If one has attained one, it does not mean the other will necessarily follow. These two different types of Nirvana are called Nirvana with Remainder and Nirvana without Remainder. Does that make sense? Remainder is a residue. Nirvana with and without residue. It is said that when we are in samsara, when we are going around in the circle, everything we experience is like being in flames. There are fires of passion and fires of aggression, for example, and these fires are put out by wisdom. The fire which perpetuates this samsaric turbulence, the state of agitation, is calmed by the realization of the true nature of the self. The oil which keeps the fire burning is extinguished. In any case, the first type of nirvana is called extinguishing the craving that keeps the fire going. The craving is extinguished, so the fire is put out. This happened when the Buddha Shakyamuni was meditating in Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree. When we say Buddha attained enlightenment, Buddha attained nirvana, we are referring to this particular time, the particular period when the Buddha meditated throughout the night and attained nirvana at dawn. In Buddhist mythology, it is said that Mara sent his daughters to tempt the Buddha and they had no effect. Then Mara sent a whole army, a whole host of demons and so forth, with all kinds of weaponry to attack the Buddha, but that had no effect. Now what does that mean? It means that the Buddha overcame all the residual causes of emotional conflicts, craving, desire, lust, aggression, violence, all kinds of manifestations of anger were all conquered. The Buddha was able to conquer all of these and then he attained nirvana. This is called nirvana with remainder, with residue, because the Buddha still had his physical body. He had what we call the five psychophysical constituents, the skandhas, or the aggregates. According to Buddhism, not just the mind, but even our body is a product of our past experiences. It's not simply a biological, physical thing that we've inherited 
in this life. The sort of body we have, whether we are attractive or not attractive, all the features associated with the body are remaining residues of the past. This is why it's called Nirvana with residue. When Buddha went to Kushinaga, not very far from his birthplace in Nubini, he passed away. When he passed away, again the state he entered into is called Nirvana. But this time it is called Nirvana without remainder, because even his physical body had dissolved. The last remaining attachment was left behind completely. This notion that first we overcome our karmic tendencies, exhaust our karmic reservoir, all kinds of karmic traces, then gain complete liberation where there is nothing to attach to or nothing to draw the liberated being back to the world is put forth by many commentators. They say that is the end, but there has also been those who have asked, once samsara has been conquered, then what happens? Obviously, it does not mean that the extinction of nirvana is the extinction of the individual. The extinction in this instance has to mean the extinction of the mental causes and conditions that gave rise to the samsaric experience. So subsequent to the attainment of nirvana, what happens to the individual? In early Buddhist literature, there's not really that much said about it. Later on, Buddhism has a lot to say about what happens post-enlightenment, but not in the early literature. In some of the Buddhist discourses, even Buddha himself refused to answer these questions because he said doing so would lead to speculation. Asking what happens to the Buddha after Nirvana is pure speculation, he says. So when he was asked by an interlocutor, does the Buddha survive Nirvana? Does he continue after attaining Nirvana in post-enlightenment? He said that was an inappropriate question to answer. Then when he was asked, does he not continue to live post-enlightenment? He said that was also an inappropriate question to ask. That is, whether the Buddha continues or not is pure speculation. The Buddha seems to have been quite content to say this is something we have to find out ourselves, that this is a personal issue, not a metaphysical question to be settled once and for all through reasoning. Unless we experience it ourselves, we can get into interminable discussions about what happens after enlightenment, but we will be none the wiser. Tralik Rinpoche then goes on to say, Wisdom also has to be attained through meditation, through the gaining of insight. In Buddhism, the insight we gain is that there is no abiding self. Nirvana is attained when we realize that there is no abiding self. If there is an abiding self, some kind of unchanging, immutable self, like the notion of Atma or the permanent self, then as far as Buddha was concerned, enlightenment would not be possible. It's only because there is no fixed self that we can aim for enlightenment. No matter how confused and deluded we are, we can transcend this state. We can go beyond this state because there is no self and this will become evident when we are meditating. Now, non-abiding nirvana refers to the particular state attained by a Buddha, a state in which both kinds of obstacles, that's the obstacles to liberation and the obstacles to omniscience, have been eliminated. Dr. Alex Burson defines it thus, Non-abiding nirvana is the static unchanging state of full enlightenment achieved by a Buddha while he is alive. Because in this state a Buddha remains neither in the extreme of continued samsaric suffering nor in the extreme of the passivity of a Hinayana arhat nirvana without residue, it is called non-abiding. I have also read 
that great bodhisattvas who return again and again to help sentient beings become liberated and enlightened are also in the state of non-abiding nirvana. Tralik Rinpoche continues, In many respects, what Buddhists call ordinary sentient beings and Buddhas are completely different. There are hardly any similarities between the two. Yet at the same time, when we achieve Buddhahood, the individual we used to be, the ordinary sentient being, has now become a fully realized Buddha. There is a continuity between the two, even though there is no strict identity that survives. A sentient being is a sentient being, and a Buddha is a Buddha. One is confused, full of delusions, defilements, obscurations, and subject to all kinds of samsaric suffering and turmoil. The other is a liberated, fully developed human without even a trace of any of that. They have nothing in common. According to Buddhism, this is a clear demonstration of the lack of self, a clear demonstration that there is no abiding self. If we realize this, then we will not be so imprisoned in our own made-up notions about whom and what we are. We are trapped within a self-fabricated conception about ourselves and everything else. Resisting this kind of knowledge, this insight, keeps us in the samsaric world, a continuously repetitious cyclic condition. We think of ourselves as having some kind of fixed identity. So when we look at the world, we also try to arrest its change. We do not see the dynamic nature of everything that surrounds us, from seasons changing to things coming into being and disappearing. We try to freeze everything, like freezing a moving picture, and this does not reflect reality. Looking at a frozen picture is not the same as viewing the world. The world is in motion, as is the self itself. So there is no fixed central point from which we are viewing the world. We are moving along with the world within which we dwell. We are in this world, we impact on this world, and the world in turn impacts on us. There is mutual influence and interaction going on continuously. This then goes towards defining who we are, what we are, and so forth. In Buddhism, seeing that there is no fixed point from which we view the world is understanding anatma, which means selflessness of the self, or seeing oneself as non-self, dogme in Tibetan. Realizing this is a great insight. In his commentary, Geshe Sonam Rinchen says that there are many kinds of misconception of how the self exists. Some come from speculations about its nature, some from philosophical views. But, he says, Buddhists are most concerned with, and I quote, our instinctive and innate misconception of the self. He writes, this focuses on the validly existent self and distorts it in such a way that it is held to be truly or inherently existent. It regards the self not as something merely attributed, but as an independent entity with objective existence. Here again, we come across the notion that there is a valid way in which we can say the self exists, but that we distort it with our conception that it is an independent and enduring entity. Geshe Sonam Rinchen says that not only do we construct such a self for ourselves, but then believe in it as well. In our meditation practice, when we understand the emptiness of the self, then the object, object of negation, that is the thing we have to prove does not exist at all, it is this constructed notion of self. It's not the self that is merely labeled in our psychophysical aggregates. 
His Holiness points to the valid self when he says, The natural occurrence of thoughts, such as I am going or I am coming, have a level of self-consciousness or sense of self which must be valid, which allow one to function. So this conventional use of the sense of self is not the one we have to do away with. It is the one that usually gets caught up in emotion, the one that has the sense of being an independent control of oneself. Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, Identify this fabrication clearly by allowing that self to appear so vividly that you feel you could reach out and touch it. Unless you take the trouble to evoke it properly, your meditation on selflessness will be like shooting an arrow without having a target. It'll be like locking the door when the thief is climbing through the window, or doing rituals to repulse harmful spirits at the west door when they are entering the east. Since you want to understand emptiness in order to free yourself from suffering, and since this entails tackling your fundamental misconception of the self, everything hinges on properly identifying what you are searching for. He goes on to mention the four schools of Buddhist thought that define the self to be negated differently. I won't go into them because it all gets quite technical and difficult to understand if you haven't quite had quite intensive teachings on them. If you're interested, though, one of the most comprehensive explanations is in Geoffrey Hopkins' great tome, A Meditation on Emptiness. But you'll have to put aside a lot of time to get through it. There's much that could be considered Buddhist jargon you'll have to get to understand. However, if you Google the four schools of Buddhist tenets, you'll find many sites and documents that are less weighty. For a real understanding, you'll have to find a teacher who has studied the tenets, but it's a major subject in the Gelukpa monasteries, so most Guluk teachers in the West will be able to help you get to grips with the various views. However, Geshe Sonam Rinchen goes on to say that all the schools use an understanding of, de- of dependent arising to refute the notion of inherent independent existence. And this leads us to the second part of Lama Tsongkhapa's verse. Even if you meditate upon the de- determination to be free and the altruistic intention Without the wisdom, realizing the final nature how things actually exist, you cannot cut the root of cyclic existence. Therefore, strive for the means to realize dependent arising. Geshe Sonam Rinchen points out that there are various levels of subtlety around the explanations of dependent arising. The level of dependent arising on which our introductory story rests, for instance, is pretty unrefined. Basically, Dependent arising means that things do not have their own independent existence, but arise and depend for their existence, their very definition, on other things. We know this at a gross level. For instance, if you want to bake a cake, whether you are successful or not depends on a whole lot of things, your ingredients, the heat of your stove, the level of your mindfulness, and so on. If any of these are lacking, your vision and the result may well be quite different things. Dependent arising is not only important in understanding emptiness, but also in understanding the workings of the law of cause and effect. And this was pointed out in the story that opened the program today. The old father was very astute. Not only had he come to terms with the end of his life, but he realized that how his son treated him would set the scene for how the son would be treated by his offspring in in turn. The son was focused on the effect That is the disappearance of his disliked old father. The father, however, was looking at the son's action as a cause, a cause for a very unsought-for effect. 
And with that, we've run out of time and must now part. Thanks for joining the program. But before you tune out, please dedicate any positive potential we've accumulated today to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. I hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks again and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.